0: First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. Father, we thank you for this story we have just heard from your word. Father, for your love and your grace that met with this woman at the well. We pray today you would meet with each and every one of us. Father, help us to hear from you. Help us to know your grace. We pray you'd speak by your Holy Spirit through your word and meet with us in a life-changing way in these moments. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, would you turn with me to John chapter 4, the passage that was just read for us. Uh, This is the fourth week in this teaching series called Grace Wins, and we have already seen in this series so far that grace uh, wins over judgment, that God's grace wins over bondage, that grace wins over greed. Today we're going to talk about how God's grace can win even over our shame, Uh, You know, I I do not claim to know uh, the spiritual condition of uh, every person in this room and those who are watching online or listening right now. Maybe there's some of you, this is your first time or your second or third time being with us, and perhaps you're still not convinced that your life really can change. Uh, Maybe you look back at your life, and if you're honest, you feel ashamed. You feel ashamed of where you've been, of the things that you've done, maybe even of who you are. And if you're in that position, you can reach a point where maybe you're not even sure that there's hope for you even with God. Now, The woman in this story felt exactly like that. Uh, She was ashamed of who she was. She was ashamed of the things that she had done. And she was so ashamed that she was starting to avoid being around other people. But then Jesus met her and everything changed for her in one afternoon. And friend, everything can change in your life in one morning. It can change today. Because God's grace can win in your life. God's grace can win even over your shame. I want you to see that with me today in this story in the Bible. As we jump right in, we're going to look today at six ways that grace wins in our lives. Six ways grace wins over our shame. Here is the first way that grace wins. Grace crosses every boundary to reach us. That's what we see at the beginning of this story in John 4. That's what Jesus does for this woman at the well. That's what Jesus will do in our life as well. He's willing to cross any boundary, every boundary that he needs to, to reach us right where we are. The story starts in verse 1. It tells us how Jesus came to be at this particular well on this particular day with this particular woman. It started because the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, were growing angry with Jesus. They were jealous of Jesus. Because of the number of disciples, those who were flocking to him. But Jesus knew that his time had not yet come. That the hour for his death on the cross had not yet come. And so because of that, he leaves Jerusalem. And he makes his way north to Galilee, the region around the Sea of Galilee. And there was a few different ways that that you could make that journey. You could go from Judea up north to Galilee. There was a road that went by the sea. There was another road that went by the Jordan River and then there was a third path, uh, actually the shortest and most direct path that went right through the middle of this region called Samaria. And yet the interesting thing about it is that for a lot of Jewish people, especially a a lot of quote-unquote holy people who were uh, super orthodox, uh, they actually would not take the shortest, most direct route because they didn't want to step foot on Samaritan soil. Uh, They were willing to walk miles out of their way to avoid walking through Samaria because of how the Jewish people at that time looked down upon the Samaritans. Now that's a long story why they felt that way. It started centuries before this when uh, those in Samaria intermarried with foreigners. And because of that, the Jewish people looked at them as as kind of half-breeds who were not as pure as they were. They also looked at the Samaritans as heretics, because they rejected most of the Old Testament. They only believed in the first five books of Moses. They also... Uh, Did not worship in Jerusalem at the temple, but instead they had erected their own temple on a mountain called Gerizim that was there in the region of Samaria. And they had a whole wacky argument for why they thought that was the right thing to do. And so for a whole lot of reasons, the Jewish people did not like the Samaritans at all. Again, so much that they would literally go out of their way to not step foot on Samaritan dirt. And yet, verse 4 not only says that Jesus walked through Samaria, it says Jesus, quote, needed to go through Samaria. And I really don't think that's because Jesus was in a hurry and wanted to take the shortest route. I think Jesus had a meeting that needed to happen on that particular day in Samaria at that particular well with that particular woman. That it was God's plan for Jesus' life to intersect this woman's life on this particular day so that grace could win in her heart. And if you're a Christian here today, isn't it neat to think about that? That at some point in your past, Jesus had an appointment, a meeting with you. there was a day in your life when Jesus intersected your heart and his grace changed your life and it changed my life. And I pray that today Jesus has an appointment with someone that's in this room. Jesus sits down at the well of one of his ancestors, Jacob, and the text says he sits down in part because he's tired and he's thirsty. And we need to notice that. Remember that Jesus is not only fully God, but he's also fully and completely man. He gets tired. He gets thirsty. That's part of why he sat down. Again, part of why he sat down is because of who he was waiting for, this woman who walks up right at that time. Notice what time it is. Verse six says that it was the sixth hour, which by Jewish reckoning, was 12 o'clock noon. I want you to imagine that you're living in this culture for just a minute. That you can't go into your house and turn on the faucet at the sink and get running water. There's no spigot in your backyard to get running water either. In order for you to have water, you have to leave your house. You have to walk up the hill outside of town to a well every day. You have to carry the water on your shoulders back to town, all the water that your family needs that day for cooking, for bathing, for everything else. Now, if that was a chore that you had to do every single day, when do you think you might do it? Most likely, you're going to do it in the morning. (laughs) Or you're going to do it late in the evening. And historically, that's when uh, women did this chore. They would go either early in the morning or late in the evening, and they would usually go in groups for camaraderie and for protection as well. And yet here is this woman. She's not there in the morning. She's not there in the evening. She's not there with anybody else. She's there right in the baking hot middle of the day at noon, and she's all by herself, almost as if she was intentionally trying to avoid people. And I would contend with you that that's exactly what she's doing. As the story goes on, we find out some of the reasons why she was a social outcast. Why she was ashamed. She had no idea who was waiting for her that day at the well. The disciples were not there. Uh, They had already gone into downtown Sychar to try to find a McDonald's and get some food for the day. Uh, But Jesus is there. He's waiting for this woman, and she comes, and he meets her, and he asks her a question. He says, give me a drink. And notice in verse 9, the woman does not reply with a yes or a no. What she replies with is shock that she was even being spoken to. Right, She says, how is it that you being a Jew ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? Now, why was she shocked? Well, we need to understand that historically speaking, Jesus was breaking at least three hard and fast cultural boundaries by just initiating this conversation. First of all, there was a gender boundary that he was breaking. He was a man and she was a woman. And in that culture, men did not speak with women publicly, listen to this, even to their own wives, Right? Those are conversations that happen at home, not out in public. So he's breaking that gender boundary. He's also, as we've already said, breaking a cultural boundary. Jews detested Samaritans. They looked down upon them. That's why Jesus' story of the good Samaritan was so shocking to people when he made the Samaritan the hero of the story. It's why this story would have been shocking to Jewish people who would read it later after John wrote it down. He's breaking a cultural barrier. And then thirdly, he's breaking a moral barrier as well. Because as becomes clear in just a moment, this was a woman of questionable character. This was a woman who had been married almost as many times as Elizabeth Taylor. And most rabbis or teachers or quote-unquote holy men would avoid publicly interacting with women who were as unholy as this woman was. And yet, listen, Jesus blasts through every single one of those barriers. He was crossing every barrier of his day to interact with this woman, and not only was he willing to do it, it was the whole reason why he came to Samaria in the first place. This is the love of Christ. The end of verse 9, there where it says, For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. The word dealings there literally means to not share in the use of things, things like cups and dishes. This was probably another reason why this woman was so surprised, that Jesus not only talked to her, but that he was asking for a drink, which would mean he would have to drink from her cup. That was definitely not something that a Jewish man would do. She assumes that he's too disgusted with who she is and where she's from to do something like that. I wonder, friend, if you've, you've ever felt that way about God. I wonder if you've ever felt about God the way this Samaritan woman felt about Jesus when this conversation first began. If you've ever thought, I'm pretty sure that God wants nothing to do with me. That if there is a God, he has to be disgusted with me and all of the garbage that I've done in my life, I'm sure he wants nothing to do with me. I've met people who who felt that way. I, I met people who sometimes I'll invite them to church and they'll, they'll say something to me like, oh, a preacher. And I, Listen, if I came into your church, I'm pretty sure the walls would collapse on top of everybody. A lightning bolt would hit me as I was walking into the front door. And, and I know they're kind of joking when they say that, but, but not really. Because what they're kind of giving away when they say something like that is how they think God thinks about them. That he doesn't care for them, he doesn't like them, he's disgusted with them. Friend, if you feel that way, this story is for you. Because that's not how God feels about you at all. His, His grace is ready to cross every and any boundary that it needs to, to reach you where you are. I wish we had more time to spend on this, but Christian, what Jesus does here does raise the question of whether we are willing as believers to cross any and every boundary and barrier to share about him with other people. Do we let things like gender, like ethnicity, like someone's lifestyle prevent us from Showing them love and grace. Do we allow things like that, barriers like that, to prevent us from treating people like real people that matter to God the way that Jesus treated this woman? I hope not. I'm afraid sometimes we do. Lord, help us to cross, to be willing to cross every boundary, like Jesus did here. To share his love and his grace with people around us that he loves. Let's look at another way grace wins over our shame. Grace offers us what our thirsty souls are longing for. I love how in verse 10, Jesus kind of starts to turn the conversation in a spiritual direction. He's already asked for water. The woman was, again, incredulous that Jesus would ask that of her. But this is what he says in verse 10. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Notice notice the way that's worded. If you knew the gift of God, the gift of God is the grace of God that Jesus wanted to give her that very day. And you know what I thought about is the fact that at that moment in time, she did not know the gift of God. She did not know the grace of God. And that's why she wasn't asking. Isn't that what it means, what Jesus says, right? He says, if you knew, you would ask. Which means because she wasn't asking, she didn't know. I think sometimes it's the same with us because we don't know how good God is because we don't know how gracious God is, because we don't know how much he wants to welcome us into his family, we don't come to him and we don't ask because we have a wrong view of the Father in heaven. Now, a few weeks ago, one of my, uh, one of my boys came and, and, I, and I saw him kind of go over to, uh, to my wife, to his mom, and, and, uh, and he asked her, uh, asked Megan uh, if he could play some video games. And, and I just, you know, I kind of called him over, kind of joking with him, but I said, hey, you know, let me ask you something. Why didn't you come and ask me that? He said, Well, Dad, I mean, I know how you feel about video games, and I know if I came and asked you, you were going to say no. So I asked her. Well, I'm not going to tell you whether he was right or wrong in what he said about that, but, but he was definitely right. But, but, but the point is that the way that he thought about his father kept him from coming to his father. And, and I think sometimes it's the same way when it comes to our relationship with God. The way that we think about God can keep us and prevent us from coming to God. But if we understand what the Bible says, that he is good and gracious, that he loves us, the Bible says his goodness and his kindness will draw us to repentance. It will draw us to himself. Friend, if you only knew how much God loves you, if you only knew how much he longs for you to come home, then you'd come. And I pray you do. I pray you come today if you never have. Of course, what Jesus talked about, this living water there in verse 10, you know, goes completely over this woman's head. And, and it would have gone over our heads, I'm sure, as well. In fact, this woman is in good company because in the chapter right before this, Jesus, in that chapter, is not speaking with a woman who is likely illiterate, as most were in that day and age. In, in the chapter right before this, he was speaking with one of the most highly educated religious leaders of his day, a Pharisee named Nicodemus. And you remember that Jesus taught Nicodemus about how he needed to be born again if he was ever going to be in heaven, and Nicodemus was confused by that. It went right over his head, right? He said, what do you mean? I need to get back into my mother's womb and be born a second time? Jesus said, no, that's not what I'm talking about. And so the same thing happens here. He's speaking about living water, and yet this woman believes he means moving water, spring water, or something like that. And she wonders how he's going to get that water since he doesn't have a bucket, Jesus is undeterred. He, he gently and lovingly and patiently explains to her what he means by living water. He tells her, basically, I'm not talking about that kind of water. I'm talking about something way better. In verse 14, this is what he says. Whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. What a promise. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. In John 7, Jesus teaches us that this living water was actually the Holy Spirit of God who is given to us when we believe in Christ. What a beautiful image this is. Jesus is saying he doesn't want to come to us and just fill up our cup one time. Right, that's what this woman had to do, right? Every day she brought her pitcher to the well, she filled it up, she took it back home, she used it until it was dry, then she carried it back the next day and she had to do that day after day after day. Jesus says, that's not what I wanna do in your heart. I don't want you to have to keep coming back to the well. I wanna put the well in your heart. I want to put a spring inside of your heart that will be constantly bubbling up. It's a fountain of life within you that's going to give you life every single day of your life and for all eternity. Christian, do not forget that that is precisely what God gave you the day you were saved. That he put a spring inside of your very heart that bubbles up every day and will keep bubbling up. Until you experience the eternal life that He has promised for you. And friend, if you're here yet and you haven't experienced that yet, that is what Jesus wants to give to you. That's what He's offering to you, the same thing He offered to this woman 2,000 years ago. And we desperately need that living water. It's the only thing that will ever quench the thirst that all of us have inside of our hearts. That's the reality. We may not admit it to ourselves. We may not talk about it in those terms, but every single one of us is thirsty for something more. And we all try to satisfy that thirst in different ways. Some people satisfy it by constantly going shopping and buying things. Right? If we can bring something home that's wrapped in plastic every couple of days, it gets us through the next couple of days. So other people that satisfy that thirst by eating or by giving into their other passions, appetites, Some people try to satisfy that thirst by always trying to produce and achieve and advance. But it never satisfies for long. You always end up with an empty jar again. That's what King Solomon taught us. He had everything, literally everything that the world has to offer. And this is what he learned in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. He says, anything I wanted, I would take it. I denied myself no pleasure. I even found great pleasure in hard work, a reward for all my labors. That's how a lot of Americans are living right now. But as I looked at everything I had worked so hard to accomplish, it was all so, listen, meaningless. It's like chasing the wind. There was nothing really worthwhile anywhere I looked. Maybe you can relate to that. You know that deep down there's an emptiness there. There's a thirstiness there for something that you don't have and something that you've never had and something that money can't buy. And friend, what you're really thirsty for is God. It's it's a relationship with the God who made you, the God who wants to save you, the God who wants to live within your heart and nothing else will truly satisfy you other than that living water. Verse 15, this woman at the well is is intrigued by Jesus' offer. You can tell that, but she's still, still confused. She still thinks maybe he's talking about some magical water spring somewhere that she can drink from and she won't have to come back to the well every day. She still doesn't understand yet. She still doesn't understand yet her spiritual need for the spiritual water that Jesus is offering her. And so that's what Jesus turns to next, to show her her need. Number three, grace shows us our need for grace. Grace shows us our need for grace. In verse 16, and to our ears, it almost sounds like Jesus is abruptly changing the subject when he says to this woman, go call your husband and come here. The woman replies with a simple, I have no husband, which was true as far as it went, but it was far from a complete statement. And she was probably hoping that the conversation would end right about there. But, but it doesn't end there, does it? Because Jesus knows the truth about her. It's like he knows the truth about every single one of us. And so he confronts her about her sin. And he says to her, yeah, you're, you're right about that when you said you have no husband. The fact of the matter is you've already had five. Five. And right now you have a live-in boyfriend who is not your husband. So you, you were right with what you just said, that you have no husband. And, and I know that some of us read that and, and we think, man, that, hey, that's pretty, pretty rough. I think Jesus is definitely making her uncomfortable here. He's breaking a lot of social rules here, talking to somebody like that about their sin and their lifestyle. I, I thought you said that God was gracious. He does not seem a whole lot gracious there, talking with her about her sin making her feel that way, drawing attention to it. But friend, listen, what Jesus was doing here was gracious. Let me tell you why. It's exactly what she needed. Because grace, God's grace, draws attention to our sin. It opens our eyes to our sin so that we will come to the well so that we will realize how much we need his saving grace. The reality is we'll never uh, reach and accept that saving grace were it not for his convicting grace that comes to our hearts first. And that shows us and reveals to us the need that each and every one of us have for his grace. And so Jesus is putting his finger right there on the most glaring area of sin in her life, And he wants to show her at least two things. He wants to show her who he is, that he has supernatural knowledge of everything in her life, but he also wants to show her who she is. She is a sinner, that she is lost, that she desperately needs the water that only Jesus can give her. And friends, I hope we know in this place today that all of us are sinners and that Jesus could right now put his finger on the most glaring area of sin in every single one of our lives because he knows us just like he knew this woman at the well. And so instead of saying to you or to me, go call your husband and come here, he might say, go print off your text messages and come here. He might say, uh, go pull your credit card statement and come here. He might say, go pull up your search history or your Netflix viewing log and come here. I don't know what that area is for you, but there is an area like that for all of us that's not the only area of our sin, it's just the most obvious. And it highlights what is true, that in our hearts, every single one of us has sinned against God and we need a Savior. And until we see that, until we see what a big deal our sin is to God, we will never understand what a big deal God's grace is to us. Talking about sin and even thinking about sin is a super uncomfortable topic, and so she changes the topic as quickly as she possibly can. Did you see that? In verse 19, she says, this is all she says, I can see that you're a prophet, right? Don't you love that? Yeah, you really know something there, don't you, right? She doesn't argue with him at all about what he just said. She just says, I can see that you're a prophet. Moving on. And then in verse 20, she tries an old classic diversion tactic, which is to start an argument about something else. And that's what she does. Look at verse 20. She says this, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one needs to worship. Of course, Jesus knows that it's a diversion tactic, but here's where we see his grace at work even in that. The fifth way grace wins over our shame, grace answers our questions and the questions we aren't even asking. But we should be. Essentially, her question was whether to worship in Jerusalem at the temple, like the Jews believed, or on Mount Gerizim in Samaria, like her Samaritan fathers had taught her. In verse 22, Jesus does tell her that the Samaritans were in a less informed position. He says to her, you worship what you don't know. In part, they were in a less informed position because they had rejected most of the Old Testament scriptures including all the parts of the Old Testament that talked about the temple that Solomon built in Jerusalem. He also reminds her that salvation comes from the Jews. Now, he's not saying that only Jews can be saved, but he's reminding her that the promises of God were given to Abraham, they were given to the Jewish people, and that ultimately salvation would come through a Jewish Messiah who, in fact, in just a moment, he would reveal was standing right in front of her. And so he does answer her question and more or less he says to her, you guys are wrong, but he doesn't belabor that point because mainly what he wants to say to her is that she wasn't asking the right question. Instead of asking where she should worship, she should have been asking who she should be worshiping and how she should be doing it. In verse 21, Jesus says it's not about where. He says the hour is coming when you're not going to worship on that mountain or in Jerusalem. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, everything was about to change. In verse 23, he says, No, the the hour has now come when the true worshipers, the kind of worshipers that God is seeking, are going to worship in spirit and in truth. They're going to have a heart that is right with God. It's going to be a worship that's based on the truth of God's Word, which is all about His Son, Jesus Christ. It's a worship that isn't about location. It's not a worship that we give sometimes on particular days in a particular place. It's a worship that we give him all the time, everywhere we go. Because again, that living water, his Holy Spirit is within us. Before we move on, a couple things I want to point out here. First off, when God is seeking you, when he is pursuing you, you might think you have certain questions that I really need God to answer. Questions about the Bible, questions about Jesus, what it means to follow Christ. They might be sincere questions. They might be authentic questions. He wants to answer those questions. But often what you find out when God is beginning to seek you is that you aren't even asking the right questions. That there are questions that you haven't even considered yet that God is beginning to answer within your heart. And maybe you're experiencing that right now in your life. Now, a second takeaway for those of us who are already believers, notice this woman tries to divert the conversation away from her sin, away from her need for Christ by starting an argument, but Jesus does not take the bait. He answers her question, but he does not start an argument with her. He lovingly turns her attention back to the new life and the new heart that he wants to give her. And friends, we need to do the same. It's easy to get in an argument with people, isn't it? And some of us, and you know who you are, are ready for an argument whenever the need should arise. And yet we need to remember that our calling is not to go out and try to win arguments, but our calling is to introduce people to Jesus, to his grace. That brings me to the next way grace wins over our shame. Here's the truth. Grace is a person that we personally meet. Oftentimes we think about grace as a quality or a characteristic of God. And of course it is. But John chapter 1 says that grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. That he is the grace of God. And so the grace of God was literally right in front of this woman. And the grace of God is is here today as we study his word. It's right in front of us. After listening to Jesus teach about what true worship is, this woman brings up the subject of the Messiah the anointed one that both the Jews and the Samaritans were waiting for. I wonder why she did that. I wonder if she was starting to wonder who this person was that was standing in front of her. And then comes Jesus' response in verse 26. And his response is the main idea of the whole story. Verse 26, he says to her, I who speak to you am he. And that's even more powerful in the original Greek because the word he is actually not there in the Greek. So what he literally says to this woman is this, I am that speaks to you. You might recognize those words, I am. That's what God told Moses his name was in Exodus chapter 3. When Exodus says, who should I tell them has sent me? God says, tell them I am that I am has sent you to them. And so Jesus is here standing in front of this woman, and he says to her literally, I am, and I am talking to you right now. And notice that the conversation ends at that moment. And the text is not explicit, but the implication is certainly that this woman's life was changed forever by this encounter with Jesus. She leaves her water pot. Did you notice that in the next verse? She leaves her water pot there and runs back to the city. She forgets the whole reason why she came to the well because of who she met. And excitedly, she runs to the city. She says, come, meet this person. He told me everything I've ever done in my life. Could this be the Christ? Because of her testimony, people flock from that town. They come out to the well. They meet with Jesus. He spends two more days there in Samaria. And by the end of those two days, basically everybody in the town gets saved. Look at verses 41 and 42. And many more believed because of his own word. And then they said to the woman, this is the woman at the well, now we believe not because of what you have said for we ourselves have heard him. They had met grace and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the savior of the world. That means he's our savior too. Jesus doesn't want to hide himself or conceal himself from us. He wants to reveal himself to us just like he did to this woman. A fourth century theologian named Ephraim the Syrian summed up this passage of John 4 so well. Listen to this. He writes this. Jesus came to the fountain as a hunter. He threw a grain before one pigeon that he might catch the whole flock. At the beginning of the conversation, he did not make himself known to her, but first she sought sight of a thirsty man, then a Jew, then a rabbi, afterwards a prophet, last of all, a Messiah. She tried to get the better of the thirsty man. She showed her dislike of the Jews. She heckled the rabbi, but she was swept off her feet by the prophet, and she adored the Christ. In short, she met the one who is grace And he changed her life. And friend, the same can be true for you. Listen, here's the last way grace wins. And we need to see this just in the story as a whole. Grace saves us and takes away all of our shame. Grace saved many people in that town in Samaria that day. Grace saved this woman at the well. And grace took away all of her shame. Again, this was a woman who was so ashamed of who she was. She was avoiding contact with the other women in town she was coming to the well at the hottest part of the day this was a woman who because of her past even for that matter because of her present she probably didn't even want to look at other people in the eyes she was avoiding them she was running from them just like she was running from God all she knew was shame that's the way other people looked at her with shame in their eyes judgment in their eyes and how could she blame them because in her quiet moments that's probably how she felt about herself Ashamed of who she was. Ashamed of what she had done. Until this day when she met Jesus. Until this day when grace took away all of her shame. And we need to ask the question, how is that possible? Why can grace win over our shame? You know why grace can win over our shame? It's because the one who is grace, the person who is grace... The one who met the woman at the well that day was willing to be shamed for all of us. He he was willing to be stripped down naked. He was willing to be nailed to a tree and hoisted up in front of everyone. He was willing to have people walk by him and mock him as he hung on the cross dying for their sins. He was willing to be mocked even by one of the thieves that was being crucified beside him. He was willing to endure that shame. It says in Hebrews 12 that he was willing to despise the shame and go to the cross. Why? Because of the joy that was set before him after that. And part of that joy, friends, is the joy of knowing that on the cross, as he experienced that shame, he was covering our shame. That he was paying for our sins so that our shame could be covered so that we could be welcomed like this woman was into his family. And we could be with him forever and ever, have that spring of eternal life. That's why he went to the cross. Wouldn't have been possible if he hadn't done that. I can't think of a better way to end this message than with a promise from Romans 10. It's it's written to all of us who've ever been ashamed of our sin. How can we know for sure that grace wins over our shame? Because of this promise right here. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Do you believe that? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who is willing to be put to shame so that we don't have to be put to shame. So that our shame and our guilt could be covered by the blood that was shed on the cross. And God, I pray for every Christian in this room, may may we leave this place in a few moments today filled with gratitude, filled with love in our hearts and thanks in our hearts because of what you've done for us. That we were just as lost, just as broken as this woman at the well was. And yet you met us there at some point in our life and you showed us grace that we did not deserve. And Lord, I pray for anyone in this room that hasn't yet experienced your grace, that they would come today. Father, if they feel like this woman at the well, they've always felt ashamed, always felt like they couldn't come to you. Today, they would realize they can come, that you are seeking them, even right now as they're listening to these words. Father, I pray they'd open up their heart. They'd cry out to you. They'd confess their sin to you. They'd believe in your son Jesus, what he did at the cross, and be saved. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.